Hello, I'm Matt Price, and this is Conversations with Criminals. This is part two of a conversation that I had with Terry Ellis. And in this part of the conversation, he offers a very realistic view of what it's like to be on the run for nine months after a robbery. He then tells me about his decision to go to Grendon, the therapeutic prison that holds some of the most dangerous prisoners in the UK. And most importantly, he talks about why he stayed. I have actually run out of words to say how blown away I was by this conversation, but I really was. I hope you like it. I'm going to ask you now, if you do like it, please take a minute to share this. Also read Terry's book. I'll mention in the notes where you can find that. And if you could leave a review on iTunes, I would be extremely grateful. I hope you find this as interesting as I did. And uh, yeah, enjoy. So, so uh, you know, we got we got away with that. You know, another night's work. It was a, it was an easy bit of work. I remember someone phoning me. I remember three or four teams phoning me over the weekend. Because right. next, I remember the, the day we done it. The next day was my birthday. So it's a birthday I'll never forget for all the right, all the wrong reasons. Yeah, of course, yeah. I think we went out that evening after we done the job and we went back to my mate's place. We got rid of the cars, the vans, and got put the dog took the dog back home, took his muzzle off. We talked. We got rid of everything, and we sort of celebrated in in in. In the only way that, that most criminals do, we had a, we had a few drinks and we talked about it and we laughed about it and then we put it to bed because you know you have to unwind because we can't go home and tell our wives, we can't tell any of our friends because as far as we're, they're concerned, we're straight guys. We work on. I worked in an auction. My mate's got a career company. My mate's got his own building company. You know, we had to go home and not. We, you know, it's, it's, you can't tell anyone that this is what you're doing. See, that, that's something that's really interesting. To, to almost live two lives in a way, yeah. to be an auctioneer. Is that, is that not boring compared to doing a robbery? I, I, I think, that, you know, I think for me, you know, getting, getting the groundwork uh, so everyone believes that you're a straight guy is, is, is essential. Oh, so it's part of the job. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, it's, you know I think for us, you know, going out every morning and, and pretending that we were going to work on me in particular, because yeah. my mates had successful companies and they were right. doing it as well, but they also, like most people, are greedy. <laughs> I imagine. Yeah. So they want the, you know, the extra money always comes in handy to expand whatever they're doing. Well, so for, so for me, yeah, I think, I think it was imperative that we, you know, that, you know, going back to what I said. So we couldn't tell anybody. Yeah. So, you know, so we have a chat, we have a, we talk about, it, we have a drink and we unwind. And when we've unwind enough that we can actually go home and then not tell anyone, that's where we're in a good place. Yeah. The stuff is, is, is sold for our connections, and that was that. What happened next was we got offered a bit of work, or you know, and uh, my friends went and done it. A few, uh, the real police turned up. I think uh, one cop got a whack on the jaw, the other one got thrown over a wall, and, and one of my mates got nicked. And with that, they put my, my picture out as a known associate of his to all the security guards and realised that I was actually the leader of, the, of this gang. Next thing I knew, unbeknown to me at that time, there was a, they, they, they put a semi strong team of officers on us to, to capture us. Right. So, you know, they'd already caught my friend and it was only a matter of time before they caught us. And when I realised that he'd been nicked, I, 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 I actually was in London at the time, was at a girlfriend's ass. And I, I'm normally up at half five in the morning anyway. And I saw something, it just didn't look right. I saw I got a guy in a bird walk past early in the morning. They weren't normal, you know, the way they were dressed. And they just didn't look right. So what I did, I, I never even told my girlfriend, I just, just got my gear on and I jumped up to, onto the roof, went along a block of flats where they were living, jumped down the other end. I think I jumped about 20 foot off, off, of, off a balcony onto a concrete floor 
And then I, I, I just walked across the road as if like I was going to work. As I looked round, I saw about 10 or 15 of them going into the ass with shields and everything else. And I, that was me gone. So I was, that was a, nine months later, I got nicked. You know? I was in Leegrave, in, uh, just outside uh, Watford, walking along the street. Uh, next thing I knew, the whole street came alive with police cars. One pulled up in front of me on the pavement, coming along the grass. I was on the phone to my pal. I threw the phone over the wall. I thought, oh, fuck, this is it. As I turned around, another one came and they thought I was going to cheese cut my legs. Uh, and then a van pulled up and everyone got out with balaclavas and then started whacking the life out of me. And then I was spread eagle on the floor. And it was actually quite a relief because I, I actually thought I was getting kidnapped until that point. And when I realised it was the police, I was actually quite relieved. It's also a relief that after spending nine or ten months on the run, it was finally over. You know, the pressure was off. So it was actually quite a relief. I can remember coming back to Kenish, or driving back to Kenish Town Police Station thinking, God, it's finally over now. I can just do this and get the fuck out of here. Um, and I remember walking into Kenish Town Police Station and they were all clapping. So we got him. Yeah, yeah I can imagine it must have been a huge deal to them. <laughs> yeah, it was because they, 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 you know, they, they, they raided so many places over that year. And I was always one step ahead of them. So I was like, so I thought, you know, you, you know, your luck eventually runs out. It's an occupational hazard doing what we do, but yeah, you know, when they want you, they're, they're going to get you. You know, yeah. you know, there's no doubt about it. You know, once they know who you are, it's, it's, you've got a very short life. And you know what? It's not a very good life because you know if you're looking over your shoulder all the time, it's it's nothing I would like to aspire to. If I was looking for a job, a uh, career move, you know. Are the, are, are the police the enemy? I think I think. Um, or were they at that point? I think for us as um, as criminals, I think they're always going to be the enemy. But I think I think uh, on a on a professional level, you know, they were doing their job. You know, we never looked at them other any any other than than they were doing their job and we were doing our job. We were lucky because we we done our job sporadically. So you know, it wasn't as we were going to work every day. We could be followed and it could be done. They were out every day looking for us. We only had to fuck up once and they would find us. And and that was the case. And we did fuck up eventually. And that day came when 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 my friend got nicked. Um, and and that was that was that was a downfall. But eventually you will mess up eventually they will come after you and when they when they did you know what as, as much as uh as much as i resented the fact of being caught i you know i, was, I, I never actually uh resented them you know it was, it was a case of I, it was, I think it was a mutual respect i think we had a mutual respect that they would they were actually doing their job and they caught me you know yeah. and I, I never i never looked at it any other way i wasn't happy well no you're not gonna no. be happy if you've been caught no and 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 following on from that, you know, I was, I was actually, I spent three days in a, in a police cell uh, with them. I never said nothing. I spent another two weeks in Pentonville. And then I went on a production, you know, where you had to go on an, on an ID parade. But first okay. of all, I had to go to Ivory and Islin, But when I got there, they were shut. Um, and then they moved me to Kentish Town. And, and uh, I remember having a discussion with them there. And they said, like, you know, you know tell us who your friends are. Because five, five of our guys have never been nicked. You know, so I said, look, I'm not going to say nothing. This is fucking, you might as well take me back to the prison. And they said, I had to go to St. Anne's uh, to do an ID photo and everything else. So I said, right, come, let's go. They took me out. The, the officer put the, the, the cuffs on me wrong. He, he was too loose. We then went up there. And as I was driving along in the back of the van, I'd, I think I had eight, eight officers with me, you know, in two cars and a van. And I was, I was classed as high security. Um, I slipped the cuffs off. And it was, I thought, oh, this is great. I'm not actually going to get home. I'll be home this evening. And there was a there was a voice inside my head that said, 
please don't do this. And there was another, the stronger voice has always been prevalent in, in me that said, come on, you can do this. We can be, we can be owned by dinner time. And that's the voice always won over. Yeah. And I can remember driving up there and then, and, and they said, you know what, give us the names of whatever. You'll be, you'll be out in a few years. And I said, listen, I'll be owned by dinner time. You know, and they just laughed and they said, you ain't coming, you ain't going to go in for quite a long time. And, and in the back of my mind, I, I had escaped, you know, I was, I was escaping. And then when we got there, I had a stroke of luck. The officers in the first car pulled up against the wall and never got out. The car, the car behind me, they pulled up, never got out. And, and the guy who was driving went in and knocked on the door and walked in there. And I was left with two officers. One stood, be, was behind me and started reading the paper and the, and the other one, uh, opened the door. You know, and, and stepped down. So with that, I just got out and whacked him on the chin, and I was gone. Fortunately, as I ran around the corner to get over the fence, over the gate, three officers came through. So I then done a U-turn and, and jumped on top of a car, up the window screen, onto the roof, onto a van, and then jumped to the wall. But where I had the other cuff on me, it caught on the wall. I couldn't pull myself over, and I was just halfway up. And then the next someone came running up behind me, grabbed me by the neck. And we we were struggling on the wall. Someone grabbed my leg, and the next thing I fell down in a heap of uh, heap on the floor, where I received uh, a couple of broken ribs, busted eye, and, a, and a, something wrong with my shoulder. And then to boot, my my solicitor came through. He was, I think saved my life at that particular moment. He came through and said, "What's going on?" And by this time, they cuffed me. And I said, "And I said, like, they just fucking jumped me." I said, "I've just got out of the van." And they've all jumped me. I'm cuffed up. And they said, no, you tried to escape. I said, how can I escape with my cuffs behind my fucking, my back in that 15 foot wall there? And they, they, you know, they protested that I tried to escape and I was quickly bundled into a van, sent back to Pentonville and put in the patches. And then the next part of the journey started. Yeah. You know, which was, was me seeing a psychologist who, who. Well. I'm wondering, at this point, how long was the sentence? Were you sentenced then at that point? No, I was, I, was, uh, I was on remand. I was, well, that was been, I was, it was only a few days into this. This is, a, this is after me getting nicked, and it's only three weeks after. I think, I, you know, my, my friends were sentenced to 10, 11 years, a year before me, so I thought, well, you know what, I, you know, they all went not guilty, and they were found guilty, and they got 10, 11, so I decided to go guilty. And with that, I got, I got 16 years, 16 years, nine months. Uh, which was a fast disparity between their sentence and mine. Yeah, of um, but the way that he did it, the judge, he gave me nine years for the robbery and he gave me a consecutive instead of a concurrent. Right. So I had to do two sentences. So I was pretty annoyed by that. However, you know, as, you know, as I said, you know, if you can't do the crime, don't do the time, you know. So I'm, I'm trying to sort of understand, imagine what it's like to have 16 years um, sentence how does it feel? How, how when you're given that? Does it make any sense to you at the time? I think I think I think at the time is you know you do a very good calculation. You know inside prison you do time served. So I'd always spent eight months or nine months on remand. So I knew that comes off my sentence. Okay. So and I also knew that that if I get whatever sentence I get, I could calculate within seconds whether I'm going to do halfway or or do a free quarter. Yeah. Now the, the longer the sentence you get, you you actually do less, believe it or not. So an 18-year sentence uh, really is, is um, eight years, eight years, four and a half months, or eight years, five and a half months. Right. When he gave me the, the, the years, I quickly calculated, and I realised that you know, I had to do eight, eight years, four and a half months, which, which was a shock in itself because you know all my all my mates got tens, they had to do fives, and they would be out in two or three years in a decat. So yeah. it was an acceptable gamble with the jobs they done because yeah. the reason we never used guns because we didn't want to get 20 years, we didn't want to get 30 years. We wanted to get 10 years, and that's why we do it. We did it that way. 
unfortunately, the powers that you know at that particular time, because of who I was, they they just they they said they would make an example of me, and the judge turned around and said, you know, well, there's enough disrespect between between the police without you dressing as one, and for that, I'm going to give you the sentences, which is which is understandable because you know I'm, I'm you know I, I accepted it for what it was, and and I realised I had to go and do it, but. You know, when you've done one sentence, you've done 10 sentences, you've done them all the same. Nothing changes. The same old shit, the same old chat, the same old jokes, the same everything. And I, and I knew at that particular moment in, in when I got sentenced that things had to change. Okay. You know, I, I, you know, I, I wasn't going to do, I wasn't going to sit with, a, with all these guys for eight years. Or I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. You know, I, I'm, not one, I'm not a weak person. I would never commit suicide. I'd never self-harm. I'd never even thought about it, thank God. But... To do eight years with all these guys that I was with was was to me like it was torture, you know. So was that because you looked at them and thought you're not going to change? Was there an element of that? I think not at the time. No, I, I think you know what started for me was I was actually in Rye Hill and and I was listening to these three old guys that that, that have been in the system all their lives. And they was in one was sixty five, one was seventy. Um, the one who was sixty five just had a kid of of a girl. And the other guy was, was I think, was, was in his late 60s. And they'd all been done for an armed robbery. They'd all got nine-year IPPs, and that, they weren't coming out. And, you know, and I, was, I was in my 40s then, and, I just, and there was a load of young kids there, and they was all looking up to these guys. And I just thought, do I really want to be here in 20 years' time doing the same thing, looking at the, letting these young kids look up to me as if I was a role model? Or do I want to actually do something and, and try and turn it around? So what can I do? I'd been under a therapist because of the escape, a forensic psychologist. And, and talking to her made me realise that there were certain bits about my personality that needed, needed looking at, <laughs> that needed changes. I'd, 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 um, I'd looked at my life as normal. You know, I'd normalised everything, you know, from care, the beatings, being abandoned as a kid. I normalised them and I gave myself an excuse to be the way I was. But the minute I started talking about them, I started to... F- I never had no empathy. And there's one thing I, you know, I could honestly say, through the whole course of my criminal career, I never thought of any victim. You know, I've hurt some people over the years who, who I thought deserved it in battle. Yeah. Uh, and I'd never, ever, I'd never, ever, you know, gave them a second thought. You know, the only thought I gave them was how to take them out of the game and how to, how to get on with, with what I was doing. But to actually, to actually be a victim and, and look at myself as a victim of my upbringing was, was, was quite new to me. And actually, when I actually started talking about it and I started to feel that, that empathy and started to cry started to feel that and started to I think the first part was you know um, you know the fact that I'd been abandoned as a kid was was a, was, a, was something I, I, I found really hard to come to terms with because the person I loved the most in all my life had, had put me on a doorstep you know in, in a home and said I'll be back later and, and that was it so that that really affected me as a man as, as a kid as a man and I, and I, and I, and I, and I, I remember breaking down just just talking about it and the more I spoke about it the more I broke down the more the more it came out of me the more the anger dissipated, and then and then over the you know that was a few months, and then I and then I signed up for Grendon Underwood. Yeah, but that obviously that's that's what we're gonna. That is just fascinating. So you signed up for Grendon. I think what I'd like to know about Grendon is what was the perception of Grendon amongst the mainstream prisons that you were in, or was there one? Um, well, yeah, there's only one perception of. Uh... Of Grendon is full of beasts, you know, it's full of the worst criminals, um, the most dangerous men in the country, the most deviant men in the country. Okay. Um, you know, you're talking serial killers, yeah. you're talking people that have killed their whole families, that kill kids, 
paedophiles, rapists, the worst sort of people. So, so it was always seen as, as a place of just a deviant element of, of, of the criminal underworld went. And, and, and on the rare occasions, armed robbers, you know, uh, very rare. I think there's only three guys, a guy called Ray Ray Bishop and a guy called Razor Smith, who writes for the Inside Times. Real lovely fellas. They actually put their self through it. And I remember reading Noel's book and, and thinking, you know what, I'd love to have an experience like that, but could I, could I put myself mentally through that, that, that process? Um, and I just put it to the back of my mind for years. And, and then I got the opportunity to go there, you know, um, through, through speaking to my psychologist, he said, look, you know what, I think this will benefit you simply because there's something not right about you. People don't whack officers and jump over walls. People don't walk into a place without any guns and do the things you do. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a certain thing about you, just like you've got no fear. And I said, well, I don't fear it. I don't, why should I fear it? It's an easy, it's easy. But that was just me. I said, I fought. And most people I spoke to always said, how the fuck did you do that? I would need a gun. I would need to do this, or you know, or I need three of us. You know, I'd do things on my own. Yeah. Uh, because I never had no fear about anything. Did you tell anyone about going to Glendon? Then did you discuss it with any of the people you were close to in prison? No. Well, what it was, I, I was my. Own, I've always been my own man. Whatever I do, I, I do. And I made my mind up that I was going to go. And I also told a select few people that I was with, and they all said I was crazy. But you know what? It's your decision. Do what you got to do. Yeah. Uh, no one would ever say anything to me about my choices. The only thing they did is say, you know what, you're going to be living with a beast in that hotel. <laughs> you need to be prepared. And I would say, you know what, I'd rather go and do something exploratory with, with myself and sit here for the next eight years. So I'm going to fuck off and do it. So I, on the morning, I remember on the morning I had to go, you know, there was a few reservations. You know, I'd, I'd made some good uh, friends. I made good relations with the guys. My codies were there. And, and it was a hard, it was hard, it was hard. You know, Paul, but you know, in prison, you get used to having friends around for two or three years and the next day they're gone. So it's, it's, you sort of get really, you get used to the fact that, that one day you're going to be with your friends. Like, it's like being abandoned as a kid. People you love the most can go like that and you get used to that. So it's really, it's, it's easy, but it's also at the same time, it's a, it's a loss. You know, so you feel that little loss that you're not going to see them guys again or you're never ever going to meet them again. Um, but you know, you just put it to one side and you go. You go and do the thing that actually makes you the person you're going to be. You know. And the thing about Grendon, from what I can understand, is that you have to earn your therapy, don't you? Yeah. You don't. You don't just turn up and lie down on a couch. No. And and it's no. something that has to be earned, and there's stages to earning that. I think you know, there's there's a, there's a there's an induction process. So it's a 12-week induction process. Mm. So you, what you do, you go there. And you're talking like guys that are so angry. I'm talking, you know, I was really, up to that, that point, I was still really angry. Yeah. You know, nothing had, nothing had changed. You know, I was angry. I was bullshit. I was self-opinionated. I was sarcastic. I was aggressive, animated. You name it, you could call me it, and I, and I resembled it. So, you know, going there for the first time, just being me, was, was going to be hard for them to change, you know, as far as I was concerned, you know, and I probably went for all the wrong reasons. I just wanted to explore this place. You know, I didn't think that I was capable of change, not for one second. I never actually, you know, I've, I, I enjoyed the, uh, the process of talking to someone and getting out, but I didn't really think that uh, therapy would change me. I didn't for one second think that, um, that it would an impact at, like the way it did or was going to. So over that 12-week process then, you arrive on day one, it was arrived on day one. What were your expectations? Did you have any? No. Okay. I think, you know, I think my biggest fear was, was actually, I had to sign a compact as soon as I walked in that I wouldn't hit anyone. 
I wouldn't use violence. I wouldn't, you know, because the whole process of Grendon is was that any man could come up to you and tell you what you were in for or they were in for and you had to accept it for what it was. You know, you then couldn't respond like you would in the system by beating the shit out of them. Yeah. You know, because, you know, the first person that came up to me strangled a young girl and threw her in a canal. Uh, the second guy came up to me who helped me up the stairs, broke his six-month-old baby's back and fractured her hips uh, and gave her 95 uh, bruises over her body because his girlfriend went out. Now, these were the first few seconds of getting there. So my, my emotions by this time were up. I, I thought, what the fuck am I doing here? What, what have I just signed up for? You know, and for me, it never got any... It just, it just never got easier. You know, them 12 weeks were probably the... What a start of, of, of a combination of of listening to depravities that you wouldn't even dream about. You know, what you couldn't even make them up. That first few weeks, I, I learned a few things. One was to go into an office with, with five or six screws in there and read a paper. Something I'd never do because they were the enemy. They were always the enemy inside. So, But I couldn't take the papers out because that was the rule number one. You had to read the papers in the office. So over that period, I, I which was hard, you know, and, and and it took me a few weeks to, to get to that stage where I could actually sit in the company of screws. Three or four week period, I got to speak to them as human beings, to humanise them, um, and, and call them by their name instead of Gov or whatever, you know. Does uh, it take a different type of prison officer? Does their mentality have to be different to be in Grendon? To- I think, I think they, yeah, of course, yeah. I think they have to, but I think they have to believe in Grendon. I think they have to believe in that, that, that you know, they're going to change mindsets and lives. I think they, they, I think most of the officers that I met there at first gave me the impression that they were there to help and that inspired me to actually continue. Yeah. So yeah, that was the first process. The first process was, was mixing with, uh, was mixing with these, the officers and humanize them. So that was lesson number one. Okay. Lesson number two was, um, to go and eat in a dining room for the first time for many years right. to actually meet with other people and that was quite a significant moment because I was used to walking back to my cell yeah. on remand for a couple of years and just eating standing up on, on top of a, a locker in a single cell and just having my own company so to actually sit down with other people and start having a conversation was quite quite a moment but you know but another learning curve and then and then I was given a, a, a pad and paper um, to write down all my thoughts and feelings about how I felt about being there and also the people I was meeting, which was a, which was good for me because the, the two people I just met, you know, they were like an abomination to me. And then I met a, a rapist who said, you know, that he shut me down straight away, so no one can tell me um, anything about what I did. You know, I don't know what you feel bad about. And I said, don't shut me down. You know, I'm, this is what you come to do sort of thing. You know, and, and I said, this is why you said it straight away. And then we had a, we had a, we had a sort of you know, ta-ta-ta. And, I, you know, I always, I've always hated sex offenders. I've always hated rapists because I think they're the scum of the universe. They destroy lives. But I was I was not there because of them. I was not there to judge them. I was there because I had to do me. So I had to sort of learn to operate on a completely different level. All the tools that I had used all my life was violence. Yeah. yeah. I was now I was now having to learn different tools. And one of them tools was, was actually articulation and, and talking. You know, admittedly, at first it came out sarcastic. You know, uh, because I, I can always remember talking to the guy that, that, that broke his kid's back, saying, you know what, I've got three girls at home. And I remember when they were six months old, how spiteful they were, you know. And, you know, just, that was my sarcasm. And and then he looked at me and went ash white and, and fucked off. But he then complained about what I said. 
So my sarcasm was still a massive problem at that stage. Did they ever comment on the crimes that you committed? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what? It was, what was their take on that? They really couldn't say nothing. You know, I, I can remember speaking to a guy that, that tried to say about me being an armed robber and about I had victims. You know, and, and I never ever mentioned the fact that I never had any guns. But I let them, I let them dribble on about, you know, yeah. putting a gun in someone's face. But as much as I, I, I never had a gun, I still had my presence and I was still quite forceful. But the guy was actually saying that the guy was actually talking to me and trying to change my my belief system. He was doing me a favour, but at that one moment I didn't really understand it. I kept thinking about what he did. Yeah. And I remember him telling me that he had an argument with his sister and she had a six month old baby and he had grabbed the kid by the, the, the legs and he'd whacked the kid on a sharp corner of a table and killed it. He just whacked his kid's head and, and killed the kid. And then got sentenced and then got out and killed her. And then, I, and then I was, and I'm thinking, fuck, how the fuck can these people, how can I put myself in the same position or the same place as these people and expect my, my, my mentally, mentally to actually accept the fact that we're all the same? I did, that was the biggest, the victimology part of Grendon was the hardest thing I had to come to terms with. We all create victims, I admit, I admit that. But there is a, there is a hierarchy in a deviant, um, section of, of, uh, our society. You have the, the, the pedophiles. You have the rapists and you have, you know, the child killers and they all sort of look at each other differently. And as an armed robber or a fraudster ever, we look at ourselves differently from them, but we all create victims. So I found it very hard through the whole time I was there to accept the fact that we were the same on so many levels. But, you know, and I still, I'm not going to be an apologist. I still came through therapy believing that, that I wasn't the same as that, you know, but as much as we, we create the same victims, I could link in with the fact that we create victims. And, then, and I could also link in with the fact that we came from abusive families, we had drink problems. Because another thing we actually dealt with there was about boredom. Right. I met lots of guys who kill people simply because of the fact they were bored. Wow. You know, I can remember talking to young guys and said, like, well, no, he, he killed an old man by putting a paving slab over his head. You know, and I said, I said, what happened? He said, well, I watched the James Bolger uh, thing and I thought I'd go out and do that because them two kids got so much uh, media attention that I decided to do it myself. Because where I lived, I was bored. So it started raining, so I went under the bridge, and there was an old guy there, so I put a pavement. So I said, is that it? Is that the only reason you killed him? He said, yeah. So I, I realised that, that even some of the biggest monsters that I met were just done it for boredom. I met rapists that, that, that didn't believe that they were rapists. They thought they was they was normal. I met paedophiles that, that, that didn't own this shit. You know, it was, a real, it was a real funny place to do, but it's also a place where I learned tolerance because now I'm with them. And so I'm leaning, I'm not, I'm not hitting anyone, so I'm actually lesson number one or lesson number three was tolerance. Yeah. So, you know, so I had to be around to learn tolerance, which was, which was why it worked so well. Yeah. How long did it take for the therapy? Because I, I, I'm fascinated by what made you stay. Because, because I, I imagine, I don't know, but surely three months or 12 weeks is a very long time in that environment, isn't it? I, you know, this, this is, the first 12 weeks were the hardest, but I don't know if I had a stroke, a, a bit of luck. You know, and, and it's a crazy sort of thing to say is that after after about six weeks or while I was there, some guy got killed in there. You know, right. he was a paedophile, uh, and the geezer that killed him was a, was a murderer. Uh, he killed a woman, but he had he had he had really gone to town in this guy's head. You know, he had smashed his face from into a pulp. You know, he was flat as anything apparently, uh, and he had killed him. He was blood on the, on the walls, the ceiling, everywhere. And, and, and when I walked, I, when I walked into the room and, and, and these two guys had come over from his wing and they were talking about it, I saw the look on everyone's face in this room. Yeah, I saw the look on the paedophiles, the rapists and everything. And I saw how scared they were. And I, and I, for one second, I just thought, great. 
you know, now they, now they really understand what, what fear is about and, you know, what could potentially happen to them. So, you know what, I'm going to fucking stay. I want to see this out. There was that moment when me wanting to, to do the same to all of them. Yeah. You know, there's a part of me that wanted to get, get revenge for all their victims, which is crazy because I created so many myself. But there was a part of me that actually enjoyed their, their discomfort, that one moment. Up until that moment, I was actually going to leave. Seeing this and seeing them, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to carry on. Thank you very much for listening. I really do appreciate your support. Part three, the final part of this conversation, will be out next week.